In his 1987 novel, Norwegian Wood, Haruki Murakami wrote the following. If you only read the books that everyone else is reading, you can only think what everyone else is thinking. The quote, which has caught the eye of countless readers for decades, highlights a simple fact known to all book lovers. Namely, we are what we read. The books and stories we choose to nourish our minds and spirits have a lasting impact on the people we become, the things we stand for, and the way we interpret the world around us. The topic of required reading in schools, an increasingly controversial talking point in the news today, is of the utmost importance. What books are young people being asked to read? What books remain hidden or underexplored? Who decides which books are important and which are not? What gives those people that right? And finally, what is the balance between keeping the classics and keeping up with the times? We will discuss all this and more today on the Thousand Lives Podcast. Hi there, and thank you so much for listening. I'm Ivan. And I'm Troy. And this is the Thousand Lives Podcast. The Thousand Lives Podcast is focused on exploring and discussing literature, from the age-old classics to contemporary works. We will be doing deep dives on the books that you know and love, as well as put books and authors in conversation with each other in what we hope will be fun and unique ways. Now, before we get started, we want to talk a little bit about our motivations behind doing this podcast. For me personally, I want my friends to read more, and I want to inspire the next generation of readers. Like you, I want to inspire more readers, our generation, younger, older, whatever, but also, I just love anything to do with reading and literature and read all the time and love listening to literary podcasts, so I figured you and I text about books all day, every day, so we might as well put a microphone in front of our faces and see what happens, and it would be a fun experience to try it. So for episode one, our topic is books that are not required reading but should be. When we were introducing the podcast, both of us talked about wanting to motivate more people to read, which goes right along with this episode. For me, this topic hits a little bit differently because I'm a teacher, so I'm in school all day, every day, and I'm really seeing a lot of apathy towards reading. I teach language arts, so I definitely see that. And you and I were discussing it, and some of the books students are being asked to read, and I think that neither of us were very happy with the general direction of reading today amongst young people, so we wanted to dive more deeply into it and think about what students are being asked to read. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about why you think required reading is an important thing to consider? Yeah, this is an important topic because when I think about myself as a 26-year-old man, I often struggle with picking up a book, uh, you know, due to being in the golden age of entertainment where we have uh, books, TV, movies, podcasts, all of these things constantly fighting for our attention. And I certainly empathize with the young readers today because they don't have a choice in reading you know, they are forced to read in schools, whereas I do have a choice. So the things that kids are reading today are largely going to indicate whether or not they're going to continue to be readers in the future as well. And I do have a question for you as well. How do schools even determine what books are going to be taught? 
That's a good question. Um, before I get into it, I want to say that I'm a classroom teacher. I don't design the curriculum for the district or anything like that. So I'm sure there are considerations that go into the decision-making process that I'm not even aware of. But what I'll say is, to me, there are two main things that obviously are factored in when they're choosing which books students read. The first one is the reading level. So you want to try to find a level book that's appropriate for the age of the student. And one of the ways that they do that is with something called the Lexile level. Uh, the Lexile level measures the difficulty of a book. And specifically, it does it by looking at sentence length, uh, grammar, word choice, diction variation, things like that. And it assigns a number to a book. So it's like, this book has a Lexile level of 890, and that kind of lets them know, okay, this book would be appropriate for this grade level. Because they don't want students reading things that are way beyond. You wouldn't have a ninth grade class reading Ulysses, for example. So that's the first thing is the difficulty of the book. The second thing that most districts are really starting to focus on, not all of them, but my district, for example, is they want to choose books that are enriching to students. And when I say they're enriching, they want books that explore non-white, middle-class, heterosexual perspectives. They want different voices, different experiences. They want students from different backgrounds to be able to see themselves in the books. So they try to pick a wide range of books. So, for example, I teach sixth grade. And one of the books that we read is The Lightning Thief, which is obviously about a bunch of white kids who find out that they're demigods. So that's that's one of the books. But the second book is called Two Roads, which explores American Indian culture and identity and American Indian boarding schools and racism and stereotypes. And so they try to pick a range of books in that way. And I want to go back to the Lexile score for a second. Is the Lexile score a good indicator of how difficult a book will actually be? To me, it's not because it disregards the content of a book. So, for example, I taught AP literature two years ago when I was doing my student teaching, and we had to kind of approve the books we wanted to teach, and we were looking to get Toni Morrison's Beloved approved and The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. And both of those books came back with really low Lexile scores. But if you've read either of those books, you know that the content in them makes them appropriate for older students. So, like, there's more that goes into the difficulty of a book than just what's happening at the sentence level. You can have simple, non-complex sentences, but you can have non-linear storytelling, or you can have very graphic, serious content. So, to me, I put a little bit of stock into the Lexile level, but, but honestly, not too much. Now, Troy, talk to us about your first choice. So for my first choice of books that aren't required reading but should be required reading, I actually chose Beloved by Toni Morrison. And I can understand why that could be a confusing first pick for people because Toni Morrison does get taught in schools, um, specifically Song of Solomon, The Bluest Eye, and Beloved get the most attention. But for me, it was really important to choose this book, and it was the first one that came to mind because even though it's highly acclaimed, it has a lot of enemies and a lot of people who try to get it banned. It's a constant source of controversy in education. So I felt kind of an inherent desire to defend it because to me, it might be the single most important book that a young person could read in terms of opening up their worldview and developing empathy. So you and I are going to get into some specifics about the look book later, but I think that it's important because it depicts the intergenerational trauma of slavery and racism in the most powerful way I've seen from any source, fiction, nonfiction book 
video, anything. I, to me, it's the most emotionally resonant. So, Before we get into the controversy surrounding the book in more detail and before we start really giving our opinions, I wanted to give a brief summary of the book that I wrote up. So Toni Morrison's 1987 novel, Beloved, considered her magnum opus by many, tells the story of Setha in Denver, a mother and daughter who, having escaped the horrors of life on the plantation, are looking to leave the past behind and build a better life for themselves. Unfortunately, the past is not ready to leave them behind. First, in the form of a spirit, and second, in flesh and blood, Setha's deceased daughter, Beloved, arrives to haunt the family and remind them that some evils last a lifetime. So why would a book about a woman trying to escape slavery with her four children to live a more peaceful, free life become such a controversial book? Because on the surface, that doesn't seem that controversial, but it has been. The book has been banned over the course of several decades, at least from 2007 to 2021. And rather than us go through the various instances when the book's been banned, I thought it would be more beneficial for us to focus on maybe the most public instance and go from there. So there was an incident that took place in Virginia where a mother and a son sort of raised some concerns about the book and it became a source of controversy. So at the heart of this incident, there was a woman named Lauren Murphy. She was the mother of a high school student who had been assigned to read Beloved in an AP English class. Now, a lot of people listening to the podcast probably know what an AP or advanced placement class means, but for people who don't, advanced placement courses are just designed to give high school students the chance to do college-level work. So students in AP courses like AP Literature, AP Physics, whatever, they engage with college-level texts, do college-level assignments, and then at the end of the year, they take a test, which is a couple hours long, and they get a score from one to five. And for most colleges, if you get a three, four, or a five, you get college credit for that class. Um, some schools require a four or a five, but the point is, if you can demonstrate mastery of the content by getting a certain score on the test, you don't have to take the class in college, which is obviously important because it's money that students don't have to spend. It sounds to me like you can read a good book and get some money for college, so what's the controversy? In this particular instance, Lauren Murphy's son is reading Beloved, and he begins to complain to her. In a Washington Post article, he called the book Beloved, quote, disgusting and gross, quote, hard to handle, and he told his mom that it was giving him night terrors, that he was reading his homework before bed, and he was having nightmares. His mom didn't like that, obviously, so she started to complain about the book and sort of raise a fuss about it. She wanted to get it banned. She failed in that pursuit. But what happened is something called the Beloved Bill was written. And the Beloved Bill basically just says that anytime a school is going to teach a book that's explicit in some way or another, they need to let parents know and then provide an alternative for students whose parents opt them out of that book. The House was actually held, or the assembly was a Republican assembly, so the bill passed. But the governor at the time, who was a Democrat, a guy named Terry McAuliffe, rejected or vetoed the bill two times. So it didn't end up passing or being written into law. Fast forward to 2021, there was a gubernatorial race in Virginia featuring Terry McAuliffe, the man who had vetoed the bill. He was running against a man named Glenn Youngkin. Glenn Youngkin released an ad featuring Lauren Murphy. It's really easy to find on YouTube. If you Google Glenn Youngkin, Lauren Murphy, you'll be able to see it. 
In that advertisement, Lauren Murphy doesn't mention Beloved specifically, but she's referring back to the incident involving Beloved where Terry McAuliffe had rejected the Beloved bill. And she's basically arguing that Terry McAuliffe doesn't think that parents should have a say in their kids' education. And in doing so, Glenn Young can kind of frames himself as a parent rights advocate. So... Uh, Ivan, what are your thoughts about the controversy surrounding Beloved, Glenn Youngkin using it as sort of a, a hot-button issue or, a talking around point. which he ran? Yeah, it was a talking point. Yeah, so I think back to when we started college, which was in 2014, and this was around the time that the conversation around safe spaces was just beginning to sort of become public discourse. And you often saw cases where people on the right side of politics use this to poke at or make fun of people in support of safe spaces. And just to give a quick summary of a safe space as well, a safe space is essentially a space, whether virtual or physical, where students could take safe haven either from content being taught or from things being discussed around them. And this is ironic because we, you know, we see the conversation take a 180 where now the topic of safe spaces and parents' rights have almost become synonymous. Uh, but what distinguishes them is the fact that parents' rights advocacy is essentially another way of saying safe spaces for white children. And you see this being said explicitly by presidential candidates like Ron DeSantis, who's also the governor of Florida, explicitly mentioned that he doesn't want white kids to feel unsafe from content that is being taught in schools uh, when it comes to things like critical race theory. Obviously, this is not a political podcast. Um, we all get enough politics in our day to day. We're here to try to talk about something hopefully a little more beautiful than politics. But I do think you bring up a really good point that this discussion of what students should be exposed to, how they should handle difficult content, and who the sort of stakeholders should be in the discussion has been going on in various contexts for a long, long time, and it goes in all kinds of directions. So I think that was an interesting connection you made that I wouldn't have thought of. So returning to Beloved, I want to talk a little bit about some of the reasons why people are upset and why people want it banned. There are three things to me that make the book difficult and three things that uh, opponents of the book tend to point out. Trigger warning, some of the things we're going to discuss here might be challenging to listen to or hear about. Feel free to fast forward or do whatever you need to do. But the first complaint that people have about Beloved is it does include one very, very minor incident of bestiality. It's, it's somewhere around page 10 or 14 there's a brief mention that some of the enslaved men on the plantation slept with cows. So that's one thing that people point to. They say, why should children be reading about this? The second thing that is difficult when you're reading the book is there's sexual assault. There are a couple instances of it. There's one very graphic instant when Setha, the protagonist, gets sexually assaulted by multiple men and actually has her breast milk stolen, which has symbolic value that we can discuss later on maybe, but that's the second difficult thing. And then the third one, which is really at the heart of the book, is the book centers on um, infanticide. Setha murders her daughter, her very young daughter, Beloved. And on the surface, all three of those things sound like reasons for parents to have questions or concerns. Like, if I had a child and I just heard out of context that they were learning about bestiality, sexual assault, and infanticide, I, I too would have questions. But I think that when you understand the context surrounding those incidents, it makes more sense. So, Let's um, focus on infanticide since that's the one that's really at the heart of the book. What happened is Setha 
and her three children. She had two sons and a daughter, Beloved, and she was pregnant with her fourth daughter, Denver. They were at a plantation called Sweet Home, which obviously is ironic because it was not a sweet home. The slave master at the plantation is a man named School Teacher who was excessively cruel and dehumanizing. Setha and her husband, he's not her officially her husband, but he's pretty much her husband, and some of the other enslaved peoples made plans to try to escape Sweet Home. Without getting into all the details, because it goes better for some characters than others, but Setha does manage to escape, and she makes it all the way to Cincinnati. Here's the problem. One day, school teacher tracks her down and is coming to take her and her children back into captivity with him at Sweet Home. Setha holds up in a shed with her children and makes a decision that rather than have her and her children go back into slavery, it would be better for her children to be dead. So she slashes Beloved's throat rather than have her daughter become an enslaved child at Sweet Home. That is the um, kind of the impetus or the precipitating factor for the whole novel because Beloved comes back and begins to haunt Setha as a spirit and as a, a fully embodied young woman. So, yes, there's infanticide, but that shows that there's always context around the difficult topics and discussions. So, given all of that, Ivan, the infanticide, the sexual assault, and the bestiality, as well as the context, do you think that the book should be banned? You know, I certainly agree with you that this is one of the most important books that a young reader can read. In general, I'm not a fan of banning books, but... The content, as you described it, is really important for a young reader to uh, make connections to the real world and to really empathize with the situation. And as a history lesson as well, um, you know, kids need to understand that slavery was a thing that happened. So, no, I'm not in favor of banning the book whatsoever. Yeah, obviously, I'm not in favor of banning it if I put it on my required reading list. To me, it is appropriate for upper-level high school students who are beginning to engage in college-level coursework because, to me, if you're doing college-level coursework, that means that the work that you're doing is intellectually engaging, but it's also challenging on an emotional and an ethical level. And to me, if you're reading about things in this book that are bothering you, I would just ask you, how do you think it felt for the people who had to experience them firsthand? And that's really at the heart of my argument about why Beloved should be required reading is that Toni Morrison does such an amazing job of dropping readers from all backgrounds into the lived experiences of enslaved people. And through reading about those harsh, cruel, disgusting, challenging, painful experiences, we can have a little bit more empathy and understanding. So, for example, when we read about Setha's scars on her back that form kind of the shape of a tree, which obviously has a lot of symbolic value, it's a visceral kind of visual way of understanding the pain and the abuse of whippings and lashings. To me, maybe this is just who I am as a person, it's one thing to sit in a history class and read about the fact that enslaved people were whipped. It's another to have those scars described with the visual imagery. There's just sort of an emotional connection there. We can learn about what life was like at Sweet Home and how difficult it was to escape, and we get our own emotions connected to the characters as we root for them and root for them and root for them. We can even begin to understand Setha's decision to kill her daughter rather than watch her become an enslaved person and understand the sort of decades of trauma that Setha and her family go through. So to me, 
the book is emotionally burdensome. It's not something you're just going to read and get a good laugh out of, but the emotional burden is the point of the book. I think if it's difficult to read about something, it's infinitely more difficult to live it. And so for me, as a white reader, it was an incredibly valuable experience. Um, And I taught it. I had the opportunity to teach it to 10th and 11th grade AP students, and uh, they seemed to find it really rewarding too. And we began to understand that we can't possibly be past slavery because it, it never goes away. It's haunting just the way the beloved haunts Setha. Do you have other thoughts? Yeah, I think there's an important historical consideration that has to be talked about as well. If you think about American history from the early onset to about the time that Beloved is written, there's not many examples in media that are written from the perspective of a black woman. And it's one of the few sources that we have at all that even discusses slavery from a black woman's perspective. So when we think about topics like intersectionality, there's often the well-deserved criticism, I believe, from black women that they sort of have to ride the coattails of the social justice conversation and are sort of made to exist within the margins when in reality, they need to be at the forefront of the conversation. That's one of the things I, you know, I, I thought about when I was reading this book. The second thing that I thought about, and this is supported actually in the book, was uh, the fact that there's not a lot of documentation from this time period in general. When you think about the Civil War, there's not much that is written about slaves from a slave's perspective. It's all written from the white perspective, right? So uh, when I think about this in the book, there's an example in there where Paul D. is first confronted with the newspaper clipping of Setha's infanticide. And Paul D. is who? Sorry, yeah. Paul D. is uh, one of the the men from Sweet Home that comes and sort of has like a relationship with Setha. Um, He is one of the men that that her husband was friends with as well. But Paul D essentially is confronted with the fact that Setha did this horrible thing and doesn't believe it because it's written in a a newspaper, right? So we just don't have a lot of documentation in general. So Toni Morrison is trying to be historical in the sense that she has to unearth some of these things that happened in order for us to fill the gaps in our knowledge of history. I think your point about storytelling and whose story gets told is really at the heart of the book. So uh, kind of the genesis of the book is that uh, Morrison was working as an editor, I think, and she came across a newspaper clipping that summarized the story of a woman named Margaret Garner who did this very thing, which is kill her child rather than have them become enslaved. And this is not a historical fiction book, but Morrison was sort of shocked that such a salacious kind of crazy story had basically been buried and she had never heard of it before. So Morrison's whole point, I think, in writing this book is to comment on the stories that are being forgotten, the perspectives that aren't being told, and bringing some of those to light. One thing I wanted to mention is when we're talking about books that should be taught or should not be taught, I think that student voice is obviously really important. When I taught the book to my AP students for one of the assignments when we finished the book, I had them write a letter to Lauren Murphy explaining why they did or did not believe that this book should be taught in schools. And I told them, you're 100% free to write whatever you want. If you think that this book is not appropriate, you can write a fake letter to her explaining why you agree and why your teacher is crazy. But every single person who wrote a letter said that they thought that the book should be taught in schools and that they acknowledged there were parts that were difficult to get through. But they thought that the benefits of uncovering what one of my students called a hidden history was more important than the difficulty they faced along the way or than the difficulty they faced along the way. So 
students, at least from the perspective of the students that I've taught, think that the book is important and worth worth reading. Um, Ivan, do you have thoughts about this book from an academic or a literary level? Because I do, but I want to give you a chance to jump in. Do you think the book is worthy of being taught to high school students? This is certainly one of the hardest books that I've ever read. Um, and I've read it twice in the past two weeks. And each time I'm uncovering something new that I didn't think about before. Academically, I've read books like Infinite Jest, Crime and Punishment. Those are both books that are, you know, notoriously hard. But this was by far harder than that. So absolutely. Obviously, I agree, too. I think that from a literary level, students are exposed to a lot of important things that they'll need as they move into college-level coursework. So, for example, the book is told in a nonlinear way. Um, students are taught from early on that books have beginnings, middles, and ends. This book deviates from that. We jump from the present involving Paul D. Setha, Denver, and Beloved, but we also get flashbacks to Sweet Home. So the nonlinear storytelling is important to teach and learn. Um, we get lots of symbolism. I mentioned the scars on Setha's back in the shape of a tree. We get the tin can as Paul D.'s heart. Um, we get chapters told from different perspectives. So uh, one of the chapters is from Stamp Paid. He's a kind of a I don't want to call him a minor character. He's not a major character, but he's an important minor character. Some chapters are from his perspective. Some are from Setha's, Paul D's, um, and so on. The book has different dialects that are important to unpack. Uh, the setting in the book it really functions as a character because for a long time the spirit of the child or the ghost is haunting the house. There's some interesting discussions to be had surrounding genre. Is this magical realism? Is it a ghost story? Is it a horror book? What, what kind of book is this? Is it historical fiction? There's just so many things I think that make this book academically rigorous and make it work on a literary level. So to me, not only is it ethically and emotionally engaging and important, it fits or it meets the standard in other ways too. And we're both going to read a, a passage that we really connected with. When I read my passage, I also want to give some final thoughts on it and then I'll throw it over to Troy. Um, so here is my passage. This is not a story to pass on. Down by the stream in back of 124, her footprints come and go, come and go. They are so familiar. Should a child, an adult, place his feet in them, they will fit. Take them out and they disappear again as though nobody ever walked there. By and by, all trace is gone. And what is forgotten is not only the footprints, but the water too, and what it is down there. The rest is weather, not the breath of the disremembered and unaccounted for, but wind in the eaves, or spring ice thawing too quickly. Just weather, certainly no clamor for a kiss, beloved. That is a very powerful passage, and the reason that I chose it is because after doing my second read-through of Beloved, the message that I got from it is that the past is everlasting, uh, which means that the past is and will always be relevant, 
this makes me think about the you know notion of healing as a nation. I don't think we can ever really fully heal from something like this because uh, things that are done and said will always bring up these past traumas. And, you know, when I think about Beloved, like the presence of Beloved, she's sort of a metaphor for that, you know, society today. I think about the things that are done and said that unearth some of this trauma of slavery. One of them, you know, the killing of unarmed black men, the prison industrial complex, which is still a legalized form of slavery today the past is and will always be present. I think that the passage you chose at the very end of the book is so amazing for a couple of reasons. First of all, like you were talking about, one of the main themes in this book is the idea of memory and what is the impact on memory. How do we construct our memories? How do we reconstruct memories? What happens to shared memories? Uh, what kind of impact do memories have on the present? And I think what we see all throughout this book is that um, the past impacts the present all of these characters are in some way or another dealing with their past traumas and it's impacting their present lives or not dealing with them as well or yeah or not or avoiding them one of the critiques of the book when it first came out was that it's too sentimental it's too sentimental to me i think that's just a misogynistic reading of the book by male critics of a female writer um if you did not read the final section, which Ivan just read, I could maybe see how you could make that argument because the final conversation between Setha and Paul D. does have some sentimentality to it. However, I think that the section that Ivan just read is really a warning to all of us, which is that if we don't tell these stories, they're going to get buried in the earth like Margaret Garner's story was in that it's essential for readers, for people to continue to unpack these difficult things and face them head on because if we just keep repressing, 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 pretending it didn't happen, acting like we're past everything, acting like everything's okay, that we're going to be in a world of hurt. And we are. And so to me, I read the last section as a bit of a warning and a kind of an ominous sort of like, this is not a story to be passed down. No, it is a story to be passed down. And, and the story is Beloved by Toni Morrison. So, uh, For my passage, I'm going to read a section. This is right after Paul D., finds out what Setha has done. Um, Stamp paid, told him, he read the newspaper clipping, and like Ivan was saying earlier, Paul D. doesn't believe it, but now he's confronting Setha about it. He says, Your love is too thick, he said, thinking, That bitch looking at me, she is right over my head, looking down through the floor at me. Too thick, she said, thinking of the clearing where baby Suggs's commands knocked the pods off horse chestnuts. Love is or it ain't. Thin love ain't love at all. And th just pause real quick. This is something that comes up in the book a lot. The idea of somebody's love being too thick. How should, it, how attached should an enslaved person become to their children when at a moment's notice it could be ripped away from them? So this is a conversation that's been going on throughout the book. Um, but Setha says, thin love ain't love at all. Yeah, it didn't work, did it? Did it work, he asked. It worked, she said. How? Your boy's gone, you don't know where, one girl dead, the other won't leave the yard. How did it work? They ain't at sweet home, school teacher ain't got him. Maybe there's worse. It ain't my job to know what's worse. It's my job to know what is and to keep them away from what I know is terrible. I did that. What you did was wrong, Setha. I should have gone back there, taken my babies back there. There could have been a way, some other way. What way? You got two feet, Setha, not four, he said, and right then a forest sprang up between them, trackless and quiet. Later he would wonder what made him say it, 
the calves of his youth, or the conviction that he was being observed through the ceiling, how fast he had moved from his shame to hers, from his cold house secret straight to her too thick love. Meanwhile, the forest was locking the distance between them, giving it shape and heft. He did not put his hat on right away. First he fingered it, deciding how his going would be, how to make it an exit, not an escape. And it was very important not to leave without looking. He stood up, turned, and looked up the white stairs. She was there, all right, standing straight as a line with her back to him. He didn't rush to the door. He moved slowly, and when he got there, he opened it before asking Setha to put supper aside for him because he might be a little late getting back. Only then did he put it on his hat. Sweet, she thought. He must think I can't bear to hear him say it. That after all I have told him, and after telling me how many feet I have, goodbye would break me to pieces. Ain't that sweet? So long, she murmured from the far side of the trees. To me, I just think it's an incredible bit of dialogue and imaginary writing. I think that the debate that Paul D. is having with Setha about whether she made the right decision or not is one that um, readers have to make themselves. So Paul D. here is saying that she made the wrong decision murdering her child. But just as some context, when she murders Beloved and is trying to kill the other kids, school teacher realizes that she's too, quote-unquote, insane to be of use to him. So then he leaves her and her family alone and goes back. So in essence, she did save her family by killing Beloved, but obviously she didn't uh, save Beloved. So one thing I'll say is I asked my students when we first read about Setha killing Beloved, I said, do you blame Seth or do you hate her? What are your feelings? And every one of them, except for one, said that they could understand where she was coming from and that they didn't hate her and that actually they did feel sympathy towards her. So I think that when you have one of the most heinous crimes we can imagine in infanticide and yet most readers still feel sympathy towards her, it, it really says something not only about the experiences of enslaved people and the how awful that must be that infanticide seems like an okay alternative, but also Morrison's writing style, which I think is in on full display in the passage I just read. So Ivan, now that we talked about my first choice, which was Beloved by Toni Morrison, do you want to talk about your first choice, which is very different, I might add? So the book that I chose is The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. And before I get into uh, the discussion, you know, let me give a quick introduction about the book. This book is about a young man named Junior who is living on a reservation. After an incident in which Junior hits a teacher in the face with a book, Junior decides he wants to go to a different school in the wider and more affluent part of town. Junior struggles with his identity as he feels half white in one place and half Indian in another, hence why the book is called The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. He feels out of place at the white school, and he is also rejected by the members of his tribe at, a, at the reservation that he lives on, even his best friend, a young man named Rowdy, turns his back on Junior after his decision is made. Junior's new life comes with some tragedy as he loses his grandmother, sister, and his friend all in the same year, all due to alcohol, which is a strong theme in this novel. Despite the horrible things that he has gone through, Junior still finishes the year strong with good grades and promises his mother he is never going to drink. The reason that I chose this book is for a very simple reason. I resonated a lot with this book. I saw parts of myself in Junior's life as I too grew up in a, obviously not like a reservation, but I grew up in a, in a poor side of Denver 
And when I went to middle school, that was like the first school that I went to that was in the more affluent part of town. And I often as well struggled with my identity growing up because, you know, I was around a lot of white people my entire life. And back in my neighborhood, I was around a lot of people that looked like myself. So there's always this clash between my identity that I resonated a lot when reading Junior's story. Troy, what are your thoughts on the book? Yeah, so this was actually my first time reading the book. Um, I read it when you told me it was going to be one of your choices. And I'm not going to lie, when I first got the book, I was a little bit concerned um, because it was clearly going to be easier than some of the books that we would be replacing um, and even some of the books that we're going to be talking about later in the podcast. So we've already said this book is easier than Beloved, and I think it's easier than the other two we're going to talk about after. So that was a concern for me. But as I kept reading, I began seeing several strengths. Um, and I think actually maybe more than any other book, my mind as a teacher, my teacher brain was racing with things that could be done with this book. So just one of the strengths I wanted to point out right off the bat is it has a very strong first-person voice, which tends to appeal to younger readers. So for example, I teach sixth grade. The Lightning Thief is most students' favorite book. Very voicey, very strong first-person point of view. The Catcher in the Rye is a book that young people tend to really like, also very voicey. The voice that Junior comes out with as he's telling his story of going to a different school, it's catchy. You feel like he's there, he's talking to you. So to me, if you're looking at point of view as a kind of literary strategy or device, I think this does a great job. In addition to first-person point of view, it also touches on some really important topics, specifically racism, the narrator's kind of conflicting identities of being Indian at a white school and a trader back on the reservation. There are also discussions around classism. He doesn't have very much money. Sexism, alcoholism, stereotypes about alcoholism in American Indians. So when we talked earlier about how schools are constantly looking for books that are enriching and explore different perspectives and um, critical issues in society, I think this book hits that because there's a lot of fruitful discussions that could be had about racism, identity, classism, sexism, and so on. Yeah, and with the themes that you discussed, especially with the ones about racial identity and substance abuse with the alcoholism, I do think that Sherman Alexie has gotten some controversy about this in the past. The controversy has been around minimizing the experience, but I think I look at this in a different way. I think that he is certainly making the conversation a lot more approachable, especially through humor. So this is the reason why, unsurprisingly, this book was also banned as well, but this is a book that I certainly would want off the ban list. Yeah, I think your point about the humor kind of not undercutting the difficult conversations but making them more accessible is really important because to me, I don't know, you can disagree or agree, I think this would be most appropriate for ninth grade if we're talking about high school. I actually think even even some middle school students could get something out of it, at least in doses. Um, but it doesn't feel like it's lecturing them. It's not like, oh, I'm going to sit down and read about racism or I'm going to sit down and read about classism or alcoholism. You've got this funny kind of humorous young voice that kids are going to find relatable talking to you about their experiences through which you have to confront difficult topics. So, so I would just wanted to say I thought the humor point was right on. In terms of some of the racial identity stuff that gets brought up in the book, I think one of the strongest moments for me in the book was when he first goes to the school and there's a giant picture, the school mascot is a redskin Indian. And that is like the first thing that he's he's confronted with. To me, like in, in a more serious book, you know, if you were to have this discussion differently, 
uh, I would probably be inclined to think that this was uh, very offensive, but Junior sort of br- like talks about it in a way that's funny and approachable and kind of just brushes it off. But it's still, you know, it's one of those one of those things that really just goes to show uh, Sherman Alexie's writing strength and being able to approach a difficult subject like that. An irrelevant contemporary topic, too. I mean, we not too many years ago had the same discussion about the Washington football team. So, again, more opportunity for debate, more opportunity for um, critical thinking, which to me as a teacher is my main goal. I want to teach students to be critical thinkers. Whether they believe what I believe, I don't really care. I want them to look at issues critically, be able to articulate their positions, and explain and back up their opinions with evidence. And I think that there are lots of ways they could do this. Uh, with this book. So it sounds like you think that students would be highly receptive to a book like this. I I do, actually. I think, honestly, I think this year with some of my sixth graders, I'm going to try because every once in Blue Moon teaching, there's just like a random day here and there, like between testing or or something where it's just a little off. I might just take a chapter of this and uh, dig into it and see, see how they respond to it because from a reading level perspective, it's just not challenging. So do you have any concerns about the book? I think some of the concerns that I had were certainly around the humor. While I think that the humor is done well, I can see how if somebody taught this book incorrectly, I think that students would just kind of laugh rather than empathize with some of the subject matter in the book. And that to me is important, right? Because while we want to you know, use humor to engage the, the topic, we don't want kids to just flat out laugh and not really pick up anything else from the subject matter so that's really the only concern uh what are the concerns that you have as an educator we've talked about the lower reading level but i think that's okay uh, t- there are a couple sexual references i mean he talks about masturbation a handful of times uh again because it's humorous it's not like he's going to a really vivid description of it i think it would be okay but that was something that kind of caught my eye a little bit like okay yeah. a young student's gonna get off task with this. I certainly share those concerns as well. One other point that I wanted to bring up before we read the sections that we chose to share with you, when we talk about intersectionality as well, when I talked about it in Beloved, you know, I, I talked about the fact that Beloved is written from a woman's perspective. This book as well is one of the few rare instances that we have in media where this is from a Native American's perspective as well. So that to me is a strength for why you should teach it as well because there's just not a lot out there. Yeah, I mean, you have authors like Leslie Marmon Silco and Ian Scott Mamaday and Louise Erdrich, but Sherman Alexie is definitely, you know, at the forefront. And obviously there's a, a lack of balance when you look at works that are considered part of the canon. It's, it's obviously white and male, predominantly white and male. And I think that one thing we're seeing with some of our book choices like Toni Morrison and The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian is it can be expanded. There are other perspectives out there. So, And I can't remember if you already said this, but um, you know, if you were to kind of give students an option to choose this or like a different book, what, what's the other book that you would sort of re- not replace, but like maybe give an option to? I'd say, I mean, some of it would depend on what grade level I was teaching. So like when I think about sixth grade, which I'm not sure this is exactly right for sixth grade, but it works because of the sexual content. Is that yeah, yeah, and it just seems like maybe it would be a little bit the nonlinear storytelling part of it. I don't know if it's exactly nonlinear, but the sort of vignette style might be a little bit much to handle. But like, I see good parallels between this and the book Two Roads, um, 
Ooh, I'm thinking about what books got taught in ninth grade. Like when I was in ninth grade, we read a separate piece by John Knowles, which is a lot about identity. I don't know if you've read that. It's about these two kids who go to a boarding school and the one kid is jealous of the other one. And they used to play this game where they would like go out on a tree branch and jump into the river and just spur the moment one of the kids shakes the branch and makes his friend fall and he like breaks his leg or it's been 15 years since I've read it. But so there's a lot about identity and relationships between young people. This book could pair well with that. So for my passage, I'm going to read from a chapter called Halloween. It says, at school today, I went dressed as a homeless dude. It was a pretty easy costume for me. There's not much difference between my good and bad clothes, so I pretty much look half homeless anyway. And Penelope, Penelope for all the listeners out there, is sort of his love interest. She goes to the school. She's described as being very popular, very pretty, and he has a crush on her. So it says, And Penelope went dressed as a homeless woman. Of course, she was the most beautiful homeless woman who ever lived. We made a cute couple. Of course, we weren't a couple at all, but I still found the need to comment on our common taste. Hey, I said, we have the same costume. I thought she was just going to sniff at me again, but she almost smiled. You have a good costume, Penelope said. You look really homeless. Thank you, I said. You look really cute. I'm not trying to be cute, she said. I'm wearing this to protest the treatment of homeless people in this country. I'm going to ask for only spare change tonight instead of candy, and I'm going to give it to all the homeless. I didn't understand how wearing a Halloween costume could become a political statement, but I admired her commitment. I wanted her to admire my commitment, too, so I lied. Well, I said, I'm wearing this to protest the treatment of homeless Native Americans in this country. Oh, she said, I guess that's pretty cool. Yeah, that spare change idea thing is a good idea. I think I might do that, too. Of course, after school, I'd be trick-or-treating on the res, so I couldn't wouldn't collect as much spare change as Penelope would in Reardon. Hey, I said, why don't we pool our money tomorrow and send it together? We'd be able to give twice as much. Penelope stared at me. She studied me. I think she was trying to figure out if I was serious. Are you for real? She asked. Yes, I said. Well, okay, she said. It's a deal. Cool, 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 I said. So later that night, I went out trick-or-treating on the res. It was a pretty stupid idea, I guess. I was probably too old to be trick-or-treating, even if I was asking for spare change for the homeless. Oh, plenty of people were happy to give me spare change, and more than a few of them gave me candy and spare change. My dad was home and sober, and he gave me a dollar. He was almost always home and sober and generous on Halloween. A few folks, especially the grandmothers, thought I was a brave little dude for going to a white school but there were a lot more people who just called me names and slammed the door in my face. And I didn't even consider what other kids might do to me. About 10 o'clock, I was walking home. Three guys jumped me. I couldn't tell who they were. They all wore Frankenstein masks. And they shoved me to the ground and kicked me a few times and spit on me. I could handle the kicks, but the spit made me feel like an insect, like a slug, like a slug burning to death from salty spit. They didn't beat me up too bad. I could tell they didn't want to put me in the hospital or anything. Mostly they just wanted to remind me that I was a traitor. And they wanted to steal my candy and the money. It wasn't much. Maybe ten bucks in coins and dollar bills. But that money and the idea of giving it to poor people had made me feel pretty good about myself. I was a poor kid raising money for other poor people. 
It made me feel almost honorable, but I just felt stupid and naive after those guys took off. I lay there in the dirt and remembered how Rowdy and I used to trick-or-treat together. We'd always wear the same costume, and I knew that if I'd been with him, I would have never gotten assaulted. And then I wondered if Rowdy was one of the guys who just beat me up. Damn, that would be awful. I wouldn't believe it. No matter how much he had hated me, Rowdy would never hurt me that way. Never. At least I hoped he'd never hurt me. The next morning at school, I walked up to Penelope and showed her my empty hands. I'm sorry, I said. Sorry for what, she asked. I raised money last night, but then some guys attacked me and stole it. Oh my god, are you okay? Yeah, they just kicked me a few times. Oh my god, where did they kick you? I lifted up my shirt and showed her the bruises on my belly and ribs and back. That's terrible. Did you see a doctor? Oh, they're not so bad, I said. That one looks like it really hurts, she said, and touched a fingertip to the huge purple bruise on my back. I almost fainted. Her touch was felt so good. I'm sorry they did that to you, she said. I'll still put your name on the money when I send it. Wow, I said. That's really cool. Thank you. You're welcome, she said and walked away. I was just going to let her go, but I had to say something memorable, something huge. Hey, I called after her. What, she asked. Feels good, doesn't it? What feels good? Feels good to help people, doesn't it? I asked. Yes, she said. Yes, it does. She smiled. Of course, after that little moment, I thought Penelope and I would become closer. I thought she'd start paying more attention to me and that everybody else would notice, and then I'd become the most popular dude in the place. But nothing much changed. I was still a stranger in a strange land, and Penelope still treated me pretty much the same. She didn't really say much to me, and I didn't really say much to her. I wanted to ask Rowdy for his advice. Hey, buddy, I would have said, how do I make a beautiful white girl fall in love with me? Well, buddy, he would have said, the first thing you have to do is change the way you look, the way you talk, and the way you walk, and then she'll think you're her freaking Prince Charming. The reason why I like that passage is because it strikes the balance between humor, voiciness, and also serious topics. I mean, we have the moment where he's getting jumped over being a traitor, over going to a white school and being spit on, dehumanized, uh, felt like a slug, which is all very serious. But then, not one page later, you have very goofy, kind of jovial, juvenile conversations between two people who might have kind of a crush on each other. So there's a really nice balance there that I think he strikes throughout the entire book. So that's why I chose that passage. And also, I think it was a great passage that also showed the resilience of Junior as a character, as well as the writing style of Alexia, like you mentioned, um, you know, sort of the goofy humor being sort of used to cope with some of the things that happen in the book. The passage that I chose was the passage that came right after Junior hits uh, the, prof the teacher in the face with the book. And to give some context into what's going on, the teacher actually shows up at Junior's home and has a little conversation about him, but I think it's indicative of some of the things that we've talked about. But I do forgive you, he said. No matter how much I don't want to, I have to forgive you. It's the only thing that keeps me from smacking you with an ugly stick. When I first started teaching here, that's what we did to the rowdy ones, you know? We beat them. That's how we were taught to teach you. We were supposed to kill the Indian to save the child. You killed Indians? No, no, it's just a saying. I didn't literally kill Indians. We were supposed to make you give up being Indian. Your songs and stories, language and dancing, everything. We weren't trying to kill Indian people. We were trying to kill Indian culture. Man, at that second, I hated Mr. P hard. I wished I had a whole dang set of encyclopedias to throw at him. 
I can't apologize to everybody I hurt, Mr. P said, but I can apologize to you. It was so backward. I'd broken his nose, but he was trying to apologize to me. I hurt a lot of Indian kids when I was a young teacher, he said. I might have broken a few bones. All of a sudden, I realized he was confessing to me. It was a different time, Mr. P said. A bad time. Very bad. It was wrong, but I was young and stupid and full of ideas, just like you. Mr. P smiled. He smiled at me. There was a piece of lettuce stuck between his front teeth. So the reason I chose that passage was, goes back to some of the things that we were discussing. The topic of whitewashing Native Americans through boarding schools or through the institutions that were created at an early point in American history, it's, that's a very serious topic. And this book, you know, sort of has a, a moment where a teacher can reflect on the actions that he's done. He sort of, sort of grows as a character. He's never mentioned again in the book. But you can see this uh, progressive growth in the character where he realizes the thing that he did back in that time was wrong. And, you know, the reason I, I chose to continue to read up to the point where he has a piece of lettuce stuck in his mouth is because it, those little points of humor just make the conversation a lot more approachable. Yeah, I think that was a good passage. Obviously, it connects to what I was saying earlier with Captain Pratt's ideology about killing the Indian and saving the man. And you get this sort of progression in thinking from the teacher and... He has a little minor evolution that we don't follow, but we also get Junior's evolution as a character. So, Now that we've talked and you've heard about the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian, we want to take a turn and talk about some books that I would consider to be more experimental. So, Troy, talk to us about your next choice. For my second pick, our third overall, I'm going to go with Jesus' Son, which is a collection of short stories by Dennis Johnson. I actually think that there's kind of a lively debate to be had about whether or not this is really a collection of short stories or it's kind of a novel masquerading as short stories, but that's something we're going to talk about later. For now, I'll just refer to it as a collection of short stories because that's how it's marketed. Um, if I had to describe Jesus' Son, which is one of my all-time favorite books, to somebody that didn't know anything about it, I would say that it's a collection of stories that traces the fortunes and misfortunes of a drug addict and alcoholic named Fuckhead. So this character Fuckhead finds himself in a series of adventures as he kind of journeys in and out of addiction. And there are times in the book when he's more sober, and then there are times in the book where he's very much under the influence, and it's sort of a roller coaster ride of emotions and events. Like I said, this is a collection that I just absolutely love. This was my third time reading it, which isn't a huge literary feat because the Picador edition, which is the one I have in my hands right now, is only 133 pages, so it's very fast-moving and quick-paced. Every single time I read it, I'm totally blown away by it for reasons that we're going to discuss in more depth. When I'm thinking about why, it, to me, it's an appropriate book, for this topic, books that should be required but aren't, it works because it really works on the level of the sentence. All the language and the imagery and the dialogue is really engaging and beautiful, and I think that every single page of the book has sentences. Whenever, me as a reader, whenever I come across a sentence I really like, I put a little star next to it. As I flip through Jesus' Son, it's just star, 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 over and over on every page. So to me... I think the aesthetics and beauty of writing need to be kind of re-centered in our consideration of what books to teach. 
there was a time when aesthetics and the beauty of the writing became less important and less prominent as people were kind of reevaluating what books should be taught. So the emphasis was really put on the message and the content. And um, I think that that's all very important. But to me, you can have a story that is heartwarming, has a good plot, is enriching uh, on a kind of a human level. But if the writing is bland and boring, I think that it totally falls apart. So I'm not advocating for totally disregarding author background content, things like that. But I just think we need to make sure that beauty is a part of all our discussions. And to me, the language in Jesus's son is just remarkable. And to show you that, I'm going to actually read an excerpt from the first short story, which I don't know about you. Do you have a favorite story? I liked Emergency and the final Beverly Home, the final story. I thought those were my favorite. I like those, but for me, my favorite story is Car Crash While Hitchhiking, which is the first in the collection. Um, Basically, this is where we're first introduced to the main character named Fuckhead, who seems to have – he's high. He admits that on the first page. And he seems to have some premonition that he's going to get in a car crash, but he gets in a vehicle with a family anyway, and they do get in a car crash in the rain. Um, And this is sort of the aftermath of it. So Fuckhead finds himself outside of the car, wandering around with the family's baby in his arms. It's not exactly clear who's alive and who's dead. It says, Headlights were coming from far off. I made for the head of the bridge, waving them to stop with one arm and clutching the baby to my shoulder with the other. It was a big semi, grinding its gears as it decelerated. The driver rolled down his window and I shouted up at him, There's a wreck. Go for help. I can't turn around here, he said. He let me and the baby up on the passenger side and we just sat there in the cab, looking at the wreckage in his headlights. Is everybody dead, he asked. I can't tell who is and who isn't, I admitted. He poured himself a cup of coffee from a thermos and switched off all but his parking lights. What time is it? Oh, it's around quarter after three, he said. By his manner, he seemed to endorse the idea of not doing anything about this. I was relieved and tearful. I'd thought something was required of me, but I hadn't wanted to find out what it was. When another car showed coming in the opposite direction, I thought I should talk to them. Can you keep the baby? I asked the truck driver. You better hang on to him, the driver said. It's a boy, isn't it? Well, I think so, I said. The man hanging out of the wrecked car was still alive as I passed, and I stopped, grown a little more used to the idea of how really badly broken he was, and made sure there was nothing I could do. He was snoring loudly and rudely. His blood bubbled out of his mouth with every breath. He wouldn't be taking many more. I knew that, but he didn't, and therefore I looked down into the great pity of a person's life on this earth. I don't mean that we all end up dead. That's not the great pity. I mean that he couldn't tell me what he was dreaming, and I couldn't tell him what was real. Before too long, there were cars backed up for a ways at either end of the bridge, and headlights giving a night game atmosphere to the steaming rubble, and ambulances and cop cars nudging through so that the air pulsed with color. I didn't talk to anyone. My secret was that in this short while I had gone from being the president of this tragedy to being a faceless onlooker at a gory wreck. At some point, an officer learned that I was one of the passengers and took my statement. I don't remember any of this except that he told me, put out your cigarette. 
We paused in our conversation to watch the dying man being loaded in the ambulance. He was still alive, still dreaming obscenely. The blood ran off him in strings. His knees jerked and his head rattled. That's a passage that I really love because I think it shows Dennis Johnson at his best, describing things. He's really an expert at saying something that makes sense but is a little bit off. Like a lot of the things he says have a little bit of a philosophical kind of tone to him, but it's not in a didactic kind of way. He's not preaching to you. He's just saying things that are simple but profound. I think the descriptions of violence and the grotesque there are beautiful. The blood running off him in strings. I think that it also gives us a really good characterization of fuckhead because on the one hand, he seems to very much want to abdicate responsibility and kind of slink back into the shadows. But there's also something kind of mythic about him. And this is detail or an idea that's introduced very early on in the first story. The idea that maybe he's a tragic kind of heroic figure and persists throughout. So it was a little microcosm of everything that I love about Jesus' son and Dennis Johnson's writing. Ivan, do you have any thoughts on that passage or just the book in general? I know this was your second time reading it. In regards to the passage, I think my favorite part of that line was, I mean, that he couldn't tell me what he was dreaming but I couldn't tell him what was real. Philosophical, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like, clearly commenting on a divide between reality and dreams, but in a simple, profound way. Yeah, and with that specific line, too, it reminds me of sort of the cosmic irony that happens in the book in the sense that Fuckhead really could give a shit about what happens to him, as he describes. He, he doesn't really care about what's going on, but things just sort of happen around him, and we're sort of stopped, you know, to really focus on what is happening at the moment. So I love this experimental sort of novel. It really forces you to read between the lines. As Troy described, there's a lot of philosophical themes that are, you know, not preached to you in the book, but you have to slow down for as you're reading them. And just due to the fact that the book is about a drug addict, it has a sort of natural stream of consciousness style in which it's written. He sort of like throws a wrench at you as you're reading and you have to slow down and figure out what the hell is going on because you know, one moment it'll be a sort of a funny description of things, and then the next moment it'll be super dark. One of my favorite parts about this book is really, I've already alluded to the experimental style and explicitly said it as well, but the experimental style I like because there's not a, there's some resemblance of a beginning in the book, and there's some resemblance of an end. It's not a linear story, so it's a collection of short stories, right? But it's not linear, so we have no idea what's going on between the beginning and the end, but we know there's some character development. At the end of the novel, he's working in a recovery home or a nursing home where he's kind of just trying to get back on his feet. And anything that happens in between is just kind of like, you know, the character progression of it all. So I certainly do. I'm glad that you chose this book. I was surprised when you chose this book because of some of the content that's in it. But as you, the listener, will hear now, the content, no matter how, how hard it is, to some extent, we do believe that uh, that it should be taught in schools. It's interesting that you use the word experimental. This was the first time I, we've talked about this book a lot, and I don't think I've heard you describe it as experimental before today. And my first kind of reaction was, mm, is it experimental? Because when I think experimental, I'm thinking infinite jest, gravity's rainbow, stream of consciousness in Faulkner's As I Lay Dying and The Sound and the Fury. But I think it is experimental in the sense that it blurs the line between short story and novel, which to me is one of the reasons why I think it's appropriate for AP or high school level students because 
from the time kids are young and are starting to do the beginnings of literary analysis, they're taught that stories and books have beginnings, middles, and ends, and that books are longer than stories. This blurs all of that. We have a sh collection of short stories about the same character and his various escapades, and you've hinted at it a little bit, but ultimately, would you say novel or short story collection? To me, it depends on the day. If you ask me one day, I'd say novel. If you ask me another day and read, I might say short story collection. And as I've sort of said, you know, there is uh, some semblance of a beginning and some semblance of an end. To me, this is a novel. Um, I think there's a clear, there's clear character progression. <laughs> and I, it's kind of hard to say. Um, I think it certainly leans more towards novel. But I wouldn't be mad if somebody described this as a short story book. Yeah, it's so. And then you're like, is it a picaresque? Because in some ways, because of the series of vignettes, uh, some of it to me depends on how much weight you put on that final story. Which, uh, to me, as a reader, I tend to prefer the earlier stories. I just like them a little better for some reason. But they're all of them are good. But if you really read into that last story, some character development, then I do think it sways novels. So. Uh, happy to hear you explain your take on that. One of the reasons why I like this book and think it could be required reading is I think there are lots of activities you could do with it. So because the structure is unique, I think there are extension activities you could assign to students. So what I like to do is have students learn literary analysis. So we read a short story, we're looking for specific things, we have discussions, and then to cement the learning or to stamp the learning, I like to put them in a position where they're creating. So they're mimicking, they're imitating, they're coming up with their own work. So, for example, I think you could have students write about their own lives mimicking this short little vignette's form. I could see asking students, either students who are advanced and are kind of ahead and need a push, or maybe just all students, write a story about a moment in your life where you felt regret and reveal the ending in the first paragraph because you know, Car Crash Will Hitchhiking, the title gives away the ending. So having them sort of mimic that and learn storytelling through creation to me is, is one real benefit of this book. Do you have concerns about it? I, I have some concerns about it, but I want to hear yours first. I think the concerns that I have are so similar to the concerns that I had about Diary of a Part-Time Indian. Uh, that is to say with uh, substance abuse, it's a clear, it's uh, explicit in some instances in the book. Because the book is written in a stream of conscious sort of style, it's very clear that the main character, Fuckhead, is like high during most of this. And so that is one of the concerns that I have is that, you know, I think that some kids will, will read this book based on that and might not get anything else if it's not taught in a correct way. But overall, I think that this book is good in, in the discussion of substance abuse because Dennis Johnson is not trying to glamorize the drug use. Instead, it's very apparent that this is like a precautionary tale, like don't do drugs or some of these misfortunes might happen to you. And when you actually read the book, I mean, none of the stories ever really seem like they're fun. They all seem like the tail end of a bad dream. And one way or another, kids nowadays are going to be, you know, they're going to be exposed to drugs in some sense. Uh, whether directly or indirectly. So I think that this book does handle it well in the end, but that is one of my concerns. Yeah, I mean, just to go off of that, you're dealing with a character named Fuckhead who's addicted to drugs and alcohol and who describes his consumption of drugs and alcohol in very vivid kind of poetic ways. So like one time he talks about 
taking pills that make his veins feel like the linings had been ripped out. So on the one hand, I think that's kind of concerning because what if you have a student who reads that and kind of thinks that it's cool or glorified, which which admittedly is a risk, but to me I kind of look at it from the other perspective, which is if you're teaching this book in an AP level class, we could say 10th, 11th, or 12th grade, you're dealing with students who either have already had experiences with drugs and alcohol or who in a few short years are going to be going to college in the real world where those things are present. If this book made Fuckhead into a real hero and a man's man and he's cool, I would be concerned about it because I would say, you know what, it's glorifying drug and alcohol use. Even though there are some allusions to him being kind of a heroic figure, I see him as very much a tragic figure deserving of pity. Pity and frustration. So to me, he's not glorified in a way that glorifies his drug and alcohol use. You know, he's rendered as a struggling kind of loser in a way. So to me, it's showing students what could be. And I actually think that there's a passage on page 42 that really sums this up, the idea that anyone can become someone like Fuckhead if they make the wrong choices. This passage says, Dun Dun tortured Jack Hotel at the lake outside of Denver. He did this to get information about a stolen item, a stereo belonging to Dun Dun's girlfriend, or perhaps to his sister. Later, Dun Dun beat a man almost to death with a tire iron right on the street in Austin, Texas, for which he'll also someday have to answer. But now he is, I think, in the state prison in Colorado. Will you believe me when I tell you there was kindness in his heart? His left hand didn't know what his right was doing. It was only that certain important connections had been burned through. If I opened up your head and ran a hot soldering iron around in your brain, I might turn you into someone like that. And I think that just really nails the theme, which is, you know, we are the product of our choices and that we all have the capacity for good and evil and that fuckhead's choices here and his associates have led them down a bad path. So there are lots of instances when he tries to do the right thing but just can't. So again, tragic figure. Before I have you read your passage or ask you to read your passage, I want to say that one thing that I like about this book is I think there's a sort of edge and relevancy that students want. Reading should be fun and engaging and entertaining, and we need to think about what students actually want to read. So, for example, one of the story collections that tends to get taught in high schools is The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. That's a fine book. I, I liked that book. I read it a couple years ago. It's especially good for someone with an interest in literature, but even though some students are going to have experiences with this through family members, I don't think that the experiences of war veterans post-war is as relatable and likely to teach a lesson to young people as a book about drug addiction and alcoholism. So when I think to myself, what is a student going to enjoy more, Jesus' son or the things they carried? Um, I think it's probably Jesus' son. My guess would be that eight or nine out of every ten kids would pick Jesus' son. And I've taught the first short story in this book, and it went over really well. Um, there's a lot to debate. I asked my students, is he someone, fuckhead, that is that should be condemned or pitied? Uh, is his problem personal or is it systemic and social? And I had students go to different corners of the classroom and formulate their opinions, and we had a, we had a lively discussion, and students would pull evidence from the text. So do you have closing thoughts, Ivan, on the book? 
prior to reading your passage? Do you want to jump right into your passage? What yeah, I'll, uh, I'll read my passage. I do want to go back to the aesthetic beauty of the writing because that was something that Troy had discussed that I very much agree with. He also heard me talk about the stream of consciousness and the way that this, this book is written. I think that this is a clear example of one of those times when you have to slow down because what's going on in the story just gets, there's a, a piece that just kind of distracts you and not distracting in like a bad sense, but it just makes you slow down to the reading. So uh, this will be on page 118. And to give the listeners some additional context as well, the story that I'm reading from is called Beverly Home. And basically what's going on in the story up to this point is that Fuckhead is essentially working in this nursing home called Beverly Home, uh, which is a home for people that are unfit for society. So this is also kind of funny and ironic because it's like kind of like the only part in the story where like you get any sort of sense that he belongs in this place. He feels like he's at home essentially. So at a certain point, he um, starts becoming kind of a peeping Tom or a voyeur on an Amish couple. Yeah. And he loves watching the woman, which, uh, you know, problematic, obviously something you would have to discuss with students. But I think it probably can be explained by the fact that he has no human connection and he's just se constantly seeking human connection. And so this is description that Ivan's going to read is kind of on the way to the their complex, right? Yeah. The home lay in a cul-de-sac in East Phoenix with the view into the desert surrounding the city. This was in the spring of that year, the season when some varieties of cactus produced tiny blossoms out of their thorns. To catch the bus home each day, I walked through a vacant lot and sometimes I'd run right up on one. One small orange flower that looked as if I had fallen down here from Andromeda, surrounded by a part of the world cast mainly in 1100 shades of brown under a sky whose blueness seemed to get lost in its own distances. Dizzy. Enchanted. I'd have felt the same if I'd been walking along and run into an elf out here sitting in a little chair. The desert days were already burning, but nothing could stifle these flowers. When I think about authors that do a really good job describing setting and landscape, the one that comes to my mind first, obviously, is Cormac McCarthy, because he's my favorite author, and so I have a bias towards him. But Johnson is very underrated uh, when it comes to describing weather and things. Even the, maybe the most iconic line from the first story, short story is I knew every raindrop by its name he I mean again there's he says things that you're like what Th that add a little bit of a cosmic kind of energy to it I mean he talks about the I flower. mean the flower dropping here from Andromeda is like yeah it's a the clouds like great gray brains I think is one of the lines yeah beautiful writing okay so that was my second and final pick our third pick overall do you want to talk about what could be maybe the most unique book on our list. I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, I do want to say one thing before we delve into this one. Um, all of the books that we have explored have very different writing styles, but I think the book that most closely resembles Jesus' son in some way, in the way that it sort of challenges the norm, is this book. This book is called The Moon Down to Earth, and it's by rather unknown author named James Newlick. This was probably like, you know, I think at the top of my list is definitely beloved. And I actually, I don't know about you, but I felt a great sense of regret not reading this sooner than, than, I, than I should have. Beloved? Yeah, it's been on my, it was on, it was on my list for, for years. And I just I've been talking about this book for years. <laughs> yeah. And I never got around to it until now. And I'm so glad that I did. 
but it also came at a at a sad time when you know, she, I mean, Toni Morrison's passed away. She's she's been dead for four years now. I wish I'd gotten this sooner. Um, in a way, I do thank you for introducing me to Cormac McCarthy. He recently passed away. Salutes to him. Um, I was I was glad that I was able to you know to read him while he was still alive. Even though I didn't enjoy his his later works, it it reminds me of the fact that some authors don't see a lot of recognition until after they're gone. Morrison and McCarthy both got their flowers when they were around to smell them, and we hope Newlick gets his. Yeah, very deservedly. Uh, James Newlick's uh, book, The Moon Down to Earth, is such a it's such a unique book. It really the format of it is is in a in a sense a. Uh, it's a bunch of narrations by by characters, but the it's not like a diary entry where it's like you know stream of consciousness. It's it's very much like almost like a play. I would say it's like in a series of interior monologues by a uh, cast of characters, maybe ten total, but four central. I would say I would say two central, four. Four that are important, and then like the rest are just like. So we've got Elizabeth and Jace are, are the, the central, central characters. And then Nelson. Nelson, I would say, is like like Secondary. kind of in between, yeah. And then Mouse. Mouse would be. I would say Mouse is below Nelson in the in the way yeah. that he affects the story. Um, but uh, let me give a, a quick introduction to the book. Um, the book is, is a collection of short of narratives from several unique characters. The focus of the story surrounds two characters, two central characters, Elizabeth and Jace. Elizabeth is a school counselor that has struggled with her weight, among other issues, as a result of growing up in an abusive household. It is at an early point in the story that Elizabeth can no longer walk and is confined to her room where her mobility is severely diminished. Through this confinement, she befriends a pizza delivery boy, a young man named Jace, who does things around the house for Elizabeth, like install a camera outside her house, bring her packages inside, wash her, and oh yeah, help her cover up her mother's death. Jace plans to move to California and tells Elizabeth about it. And what comes next is uh, what I can only describe as a crazy set of events. You've got all these characters sort of like hurtling towards a, a dramatic conclusion, which I lo I love stories that have multiple perspectives. I, As I Lay Dying is a book I really, really like. Um, so, yeah, this book really fits into that mold. What did you think about the the way the book is written? I know we, we already discussed it a little bit, but, you know, how would you compare this to, say, like Jesus' son? You know, I, like I'll compare it to Diary. This was my first time reading this book. I would not have known about it had it not been for you. And I had a mix of emotions as I was going through it. I would say somewhere around the 115-page mark, I was a little bit like, oh. But the thing that kept me going on this book is the prose style. Like Dennis Johnson, not saying it's equal to Dennis Johnson, but like he's clearly a strong writer. He's got strong writing skills. And so every time you start to get a little bit like, Man, is Elizabeth talking about her weight again? Or is Jace talking about Miles Davis again? He brings you back in. He hooks you in. So I do um, see similarities with Jesus' son in terms of experimentation with form. Jesus' son centers on one character, and the rest of the characters kind of float around him. They all serve his development. We have separate character development here, and then they like supplement each other. But if Jace is the main character, there's no character as strong as Elizabeth in Jesus' Son, because it's it's, you know, like if Jace is the main character in Moon Down to Earth, and Fuckhead's the main character in Jesus' Son, you've got a secondary character in Moon Down to Earth that's more developed than any secondary character in in Jesus' Son. Definitely, and I I would even say that uh most of the characters in the book don't develop at all. I would say that most of them actually regress. 
as the story continues, as we continue seeing um, some of the writing. I would, I would argue that, like, you know, the storylines of, like, Nelson and even Elizabeth, I would say, are pretty much regressions in, in, in the character. Yeah, and the one character who, who looks to be moving towards progression, it's unclear what happens to him I, I would say at the end of the story I, i'm not there's some debate about it there's uh, i think the ending's kind of ambiguous some people think it's clearer than others i i think ivan and i both agree that we yeah we both had we've both developed separate theories for what, what happens at the end yeah i mean we both just both started talking about it and it was clear we did not read it the same yeah. so then we both were like going back finding details talk to us about some of the, the literary qualities that you think are are helpful for students and what at what level would you teach this uh, well, I would teach it at, you know, honestly, it might be kind of a cool book for, like, seniors to read just because I think they would have the maturity. One of the main things in this book is body issues and what happens to the human body and the way that it it it's valued. I mean, what is the first line? Is it beautiful people always get what they want? Is that the very first sentence? I don't remember if it was, like, in the introduction or something, but... The f oh, the first thing that's in the book is like the first word and the last word of this book are both beautiful. Beautiful, yep. Um, so beautiful people always get what they want really establishes a theme early on in the book, which is the idea that we place a lot of value and stuff on our bodies and characters lose control of their bodies in the book and what does that do to their mindset? What does that do to the way that they're viewed? Um, You've got Jason and Elizabeth on kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. Elizabeth's body's failing or Jace's seems to open doors for him. You know, his beauty, it's, he gets attention and stuff. So uh, I would want to do it with old enough students where we could talk a little bit about things like fat shaming and body issues. With I mean, like, if you talk to a freshman about this, I think it could devolve into, like, fatty. And, you know what yeah, I mean? So you need a certain maturity level from a literary perspective interior monologue description multiple perspectives but you do get like flashbacks and stuff you get names at the tops of chapters that tell you who's going to be talking so it would be like elizabeth or jace but then sometimes you'll get like elizabeth backslash solitaire and it'll give you like a little bit of the topic too dialogue i think dialogue is really good but it is not offset in the way so if you read beloved it'll be each new time a new character speaks, it's broken off. There's quotes. Not this. This is just running. So I have the idea that like you get, it creates a kind of schizophrenic pace a little bit. You could ask character uh, students to create two characters and have them discuss the same topic, or you could give them a list of issues like pick two characters that have different perspectives about love or death or betrayal or money or loyalty or work, and then juxtapose them. Juxtapositions another one. Because like a lot of times you'll get Jace talking about beauty or freedom, and then you'll go right to Elizabeth talking about beauty or freedom in there. You know, Elizabeth is bedridden. I think at one point it says she's like in the 300s yeah. pound-wise, which is not us fat shaming, but like it caused her knee replacement to break down. Her mother's dead in the room down the hall, and she's collecting the Social Security. So I think one of the interesting uh, juxtapositions in the novel is also how each character is sort of dealing with uh, the topic of uh, regret, right? So we have a couple characters that are constantly thinking back on their lives. They're constantly sort of like having this feeling that they regret some of the uh, some of the choices they made throughout their lives. Uh, with the case of Nelson, right? Like he he regrets the way that he talks to his wife sometimes, and his and his wife is like now dead, and he you know, he sort of has to live through that now, but he doesn't really know how. It has some it has some pretty dark topics as well. You know the the topics of uh, 
of like child abuse, right? Like we know that the character Elizabeth grows up in a pretty traumatic house. Like her mom is a person clearly dealing with regret in her life. She regrets having having her, having Elizabeth. And because of it, she, you know, she kind of punishes Elizabeth throughout her daily life. Verbally and physically, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Verb- yeah verbally and physically. Um, and it causes Elizabeth, you know, to just feel really bad about herself all the time. I mean... And there's weird detail. I mean, like, I remember her telling you, like, I don't like Elizabeth because she's like a school counselor and she seems kind of apathetic at her job. She's, I don't think she's like a bundle of passion, but she doesn't seem terrible. But, like, she hugs the kid and kind of like in a, a way that is a creepy way, to me. Yeah, for sure. Um... There, there is trigger warning, sexual assault. Nelson comes in and takes advantage of the fact that Elizabeth is yeah. immobile. And and we uh, we should give a little bit of background to the character. So Nelson is the is uh, one of the secondary characters. He's uh, a, the neighbor of Elizabeth. Elizabeth lives in a trailer park uh, home with her mom. Her mom eventually does die, and, and she's like Troy said before, she's rotting in the bat in the bedroom uh, down the hall. But you got to imagine. I mean, this is like a, a, a mobile home, so it's not very big. And Elizabeth is just kind of confined there. But, yeah, Nelson does, uh, at one point it's revealed that Nelson does sexually assault uh, Elizabeth. And that part, I mean, that part kind of ties a little bit into the ending, but we're not going to get into that. Nelson's creepy. And there's racist language. Nelson clearly has racist views about Jace. Jace is uh, half black, half Asian American. And Nelson sees him going in and out constantly to Elizabeth. He calls him the N-word numerous occasions. And so when we were talking about Diary of a Part-Time Indian, the topic of identity came up. And that's something that I think uh, is definitely a driving factor in this story. Every character is dealing with some sort of identity issue. Um, You know, Jace as you mentioned, is half black, half Asian, so he's navigating the world through that lens. You have Elizabeth, who is Mexican, but her dad uh, was an immigrant. Uh, you have, you know, some of the minor characters dealing with identity issues as well, like Nelson himself, you know, who's old, uh, and he's navigating the world sort of through that, like how to, how to act at his age, um, you know, what sort of things to be concerned about. You have uh, the other character, Mouse, who who's gay. So there's all these sort of identity issues, but I think it sort of speaks to how identity can really, um, you know, drive the, the the plot of a story. And uh, you know, for the most part, I think it's very interesting as well. So I really did enjoy that part of it, and I thought it was worthy of discussion. A little bit similar to. Um, Jesus' son, I think that this book presents issues that students will be interested in. Body image, guns. Elizabeth talks a lot about a gun that comes into play. Uh, Music, employment, relationships, moving, freedom from parents, absentee fathers. I mean, there's, I I don't, is there a father in sight in the book other than Nelson, whose parents have, whose kids have clearly like rejected him as a father figure, so... Do you have any concerns about the books? I mean, we talked a little bit about the content. I, I'm worried a little bit about the... Sometimes the fact that it's interior monologue over and over and over again it makes it drag a little bit. Like, the number of times Elizabeth talks about how overweight she is, sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, are you are you serious? But I think the fact that the book is in little vignettes, like... It, I didn't, but if you skimmed a vignette or two, you probably could make it through okay. Yeah. There are key ones that you couldn't skip, but yeah. Yeah, and up to this point in, in our podcast, you know, we've, we've talked about what I'm comfortable with. I would say the, 
the, my only concern, despite all the other topics that we've already discussed, is probably the topic of suicide, which is a pretty apparent topic in here. I mean, every character to some extent has thought about the thoughts of suicide. Jace? Yeah, he does. I'm pretty sure. I mean, Elizabeth. Elizabeth yes. for sure. Elizabeth and Nelson for sure. I mean, the mom's body rotting in the bedroom is just so symbolic of the the message in the story, which is about like the degradation of human body and so. I, I, the fact that she just leaves her mom in there. Well, she also can't move, right? So, but she can move because she crawls one a couple times yeah. over to the bathroom. So she, also, she could also call somebody for help. Right. <laughs> J- and J- the thing about Jace is, I think Jace knows what's going on. Yeah, I think so. Well, the Nel- oh Nelson for sure knows too, which was a little bit harder to believe to me. Well, he's yeah. It's, so a little bit of context with that. <laughs> um, Nelson, we already talked about his creepy elements, but he is like. Like observing their house, observing uh, her mobile home from a distance. Like he has binoculars set up uh, on the window, so that's that alone is like pretty, pretty bizarre. He writes car license plates yeah. down for every new car in the na- which is crazy, but also the kind of writerly detail that I love. This is an interesting part of the conversation. What do you think about uh, the character of Nelson sort of having a redemption arc through? the aesthetic uh, writing of James Newlick because, you know, uh, in the story, Nelson doesn't have any sort of redemption arc, but he has some of the most beautiful passages in the book. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's I, I tend to think of the more beautiful passages being Jace's, but, it I mean, it's a age-old question in literature, like, can b- beautiful writing redeem ugly characters? Lolita. That's the whole freaking thing. Uh, Child of God by Cormac McCarthy. I mean, you've got a necrophiliac murderer, but he's he, the writing is beautiful. Blood Meridian, uh, Song, not Song of Solomon, Beloved. So, yeah, to me, Nelson's funny because Nelson's really present in the beginning, and then I, I would I want to check, but like he feels like he really dips to me in the middle, and then I'd say the fi- like first third he's there, middle third he's rarely there, and then final third he like almost has as much. Uh, space as Elizabeth. To me, like he, uh, he is a secondary character, but he drives so much of like of the narrative for me. Um, he's essential to the plot. I don't think you can have it without him. No, you can't. And it's it's both through his actions, but also he's just a, a figure that's. Uh, you want to skim through Nelson because he's whiny. He complains about his kids. He's creepy. Yeah. He's racist. So you have to fight the temptation to kind of disregard him, but I think the language ho- hooks you. Yeah, and let me, uh, this, I, this is to me like one of the strongest passages in the book, and I, I truly, I mean, this book, damn, when I read this, I was like, I felt sad. I legitimately felt sad because um, I was just thinking about, you know, loss and whatnot. I mean, this is a character that has lost his wife, so he doesn't really know what to do, so that's the context behind it. Um, so let me, I'll start with the, it's a page uh, 102. Perhaps it is human need, not just American, why the need to line the nest with garbage? The last item Beatrice purchased at a garage sale before she died was a ceramic cat, a thin black silver from the 60s when things were much more stylized. Everything is so gray now. We'd gone into an argument over it. Why did you buy the damn thing? How much did you pay for it? Five dollars, Jesus. We don't need any more junk in here, Beatrice. You're always questioning everything I do, Bob. I'm sick of it. She never paid the cat any mind after our argument. It just sat on a shelf in the living room, and she never looked at it again. She came to hate it, 
And then a few days after, or a week later, I can't remember, she was gone. And now I find myself terribly attached to it, to the ceramic cat, because my Beatrice had seen it, had loved it. Something about it called to her, sitting lonely among faded silver and dull bakelite, and had given her joy, however briefly, and in my stupidity and ever-present concern for money, I had questioned her. If she were here now, I would ask her for forgiveness, ask her to love a cat openly, for after all she had chosen it. I allowed dust to gather over objects in the house, the constant dust that fingers its way under the windowsills and settles over everything as if it were a living thing with its own agenda. A fine grate on the countertops, the vast dead eye of the television, the clamshell of the turntable in the living room. It is invisible, yet the smell of it is everywhere, gathered in the corners, adding weight to the drapes until they threaten to collapse. Nelson is kind of despicable, like... He's not somebody I would want to hang out with. But he talks about his wife in ways where you're like, you know. He had some humanity. He had some humanity. And, you know, I was sitting here saying that I thought the most beautiful passages were Jace's. And I would still probably argue that. But I wrote down three passages that I could possibly read depending on what way you went. And two of them were Nelson. So I do think some of the nicer writing is Nelson's, and I'll share. He's he's reflecting on death like he always is. Nelson says, Soon my hands will be folded funerary style. Such an unnatural posture. I never slept with my hands folded over my chest while alive, a living, breathing person. I bought a simple black suit from a haberdashery downtown. Do people use the word haberdashery anymore? If I were to think of it in terms of rent, the suit costs three months' rent. Beatrice would have scolded me for it. Stop folding your hands like that. You're not dead yet. Why do funeral directors insist on folding a corpse's hand over its heart? A good question for Beatrice, but she is gone, and the only companions I have are the bottles I have hidden around the house. I hide them. It's a game I play, something to occupy my time. In summertime, the eternal summer of Rio Seco, I post the bottles of scotch. I push the bottles of scotch deep into the rolled carpet on the porch. Bottled fire, the liquid satanically alive. A reminder that I'm still a living, breathing being, though I've never felt more dead than I do now. I am living under constant watch. At any moment, the mobile floor might open up and I will be swallowed, falling down, 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 falling down, down, down into nothingness. Is total nothingness a bad thing? Was the time before the womb so terrible? I can only recall the hereafter, a great nameless birth, the shock of it, the first day of school, the first kiss, my first car, an earnest payment on a house I did not want, a little house Beatrice fell in love with, a house I never liked. It was our first, a real brick and mortar, not this tin can I live in now, two axles and four wheels, skirting no stronger than batting, spiders hanging in the webs, in the heat, their eyes glittering in the dark, they patiently await my death. They are agents of nature's promise, a reminder that everything man has created will be destroyed and forgotten. I mean, that's great. And I think I think with that passage, that we'll, what I really took from it is like we see his development as a character, but in a in a different way. We sort of see his development through his regrets, right? Like he he's just he's going he's like describing his first kiss he's describing his first job and then all of a sudden he's like put in this position he's like in this in this tin can as he describes it it's just like it's it, if you were to like summarize a person's life in like 
a couple sentences, that was an amazing way to do it. I mean, you can just really sense the regret when he's like describing those things. The thing I like is it reminds me of the passage you chose for Jesus' son, which is a small detail sparks a profound thought, kind of. Like he's thinking about how they fold the hands, and that leads into a tangent about life and death, and I, I love that, and that's hard to do without sounding like you're preaching at somebody. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, I saw the moon and it made me think of God's, and it, that's do tough. You think to do. like teaching this to high schoolers? Do you think they would get a, a like a same, same sort of like reflection when reading some of these passages, or do you think you would have to like really slow down for them and kind of just like give them a, a little bit of an inkling towards? They'd have to slow them down, probably because so much of this is about death, and uh, high schoolers aren't planning on dying yeah. anytime soon. So. No, but no, but I, they do have a life to look ahead towards, right? right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Or maybe they have family members, too, that are, you know, yeah. like, yeah, maybe they have a Elizabeth or a Nelson in their life. I, I liked the contemporary references. Like I've said a couple times, you and I are both writers. So often when we read, when you get pop culture references, it's like to Coca-Cola or the Beatles or something because they were written when those things were contemporary. Now we've got Kendrick and Kanye and Lupe Fiasco mentioned in here, and it was kind of interesting to see, like, our people in a work of literature. I'm normally not a fan of, like, referencing things that are popular in my in the way that I write. Because it dates it. Because it dates it. However, at the same time, I do think that he did it well in this, and uh, I think that it, it did add to the overall um, trajectory of the book as well. Yeah, I think that it is tricky. If you're going to reference it, it needs to have it needs to build to the story in some way. So like if you reference a Beatles song, that theme in the Beatles song should have some relevance to to the story, which I'm not actually sure the Kendrick and Kanye references do now that I think about it. But it was less that I liked it and more that I thought it was just interesting to see like, it's no longer the Beatles. It's no longer Journey. It's not whatever other band you would think of. It's it's Kendrick and Kanye. I, I, I didn't think of it so much of as, a, as a distraction. I do think that uh, sometimes when it's written in there, it is a bit of a distraction, but I don't think that it was uh, too bad in this, and I almost even forgot about it until you mentioned it. I mean, the themes in the book are so, so overwhelming. It's just like it's hard to pay attention to those little details. Um, but I did want to read one more passage, and I'm trying to find it at the moment. Damn, I'm excited talking about this book. This is, this is one that we could do a separate episode on. Almost every every part of this book almost seems like a performance. Like each person, if you put them on stage and ask them to tell about their life and write something about that, this is how I, I'm like thinking about it. I'm thinking they're like in front of like a theater. I Yes, you could make a play out of this. I think I would have all the characters up on stage and then whichever one was talking would have a spotlight on them and when they stop talking, the light goes off and we go to another one. Like Elizabeth in the bed talk. Yeah, that could be cool. Because they're not very mobile. The only time you see movement is when Jason and his friends are on the bike. The bikes. Yeah. They, there's bike riding. Everyone else is pretty much like Nelson's in his trailer. He doesn't even wander around the trailer. Jason's in his bed a lot. Yeah. It could be done. It could be done. Yeah. Going back to the topic of identity, one of the ways that it is dealt with in this book is through names, uh, specifically last names. Elizabeth is somebody who isn't too excited about her last name because she understands that there's this dark history with the absentee father essentially leaving uh, the family. So her mom sort of shames her for having the same name as her absentee father. 
Um, but that, this is uh, this following passage that I'm going to read is very powerful and very beautifully written as well. And I think it really speaks to James Newlick's writing ability. So uh, I'll go ahead and share that now. Salas. My father's name is a palindrome. As he was opening the front door, he was exiting the back, a perfect disappearing act. If I conjure his face, there is only darkness and black holes where his eyes should be. I have no photographs of my father. Mother destroyed any photographic evidence of his existence. I remember his face as my own, which is to say, I don't remember it at all. I rarely look into a mirror. Though when I was teaching, I looked into a mirror every morning to apply a modest amount of makeup, just a small dab to take the sheen away. A constellation of freckles peppers my cheeks, another genetic mishap. And if I get lost in them, I forget who I am, where I am, why I looked in the mirror in the first place. Mother's name is different from my own. She doesn't care for my surname, obviously. A word hissed when the mail is delivered. But it was his name. It is the name on my birth certificate. It is the name on my master's degree. Elizabeth Salas. Black ink on ecru. My first name and my last name only. No middle name. No initial. Because mother wanted me to disappear when I was an hour old. Already a hindrance and not yet fully clothed. I didn't want children, mother says. I was poor. Why did I need a child? Your father was a filthy migrant, moving to the next field, the next woman, and his awful stench in my hair. Surely you loved him at some point, mother said to the dinner table as we lay down the cards, sitting across from me in her usual spot. She shakes her head, lost in recollection, a private film only she can see. I mean, it's just such, it's such powerful imagery. I mean, uh, when we talk about like the, you know, the aesthetic value of, of writing and kind of like bringing it back, there's so many passages in here that, you know, at first glance you read them and then you, you're just like, I need to read that again. This is, yeah. the language is so beautiful, so descriptive. And you can literally picture her mom sitting, her, sitting there talking to Elizabeth about her dad. And she's just like going through all the things in her mind, all the, all the different things that she experienced. I think too that there's some thought. Sometimes I'm like, do people still write beautifully anymore? Because it seems like a lot of contemporary fiction is just not on the level of like a Toni Morrison or a Cormac McCarthy or a Faulkner or a Joyce or Kafka or whoever you wanted to say. I don't know that the novel will ever hold the importance that it did back in the day. Because like we said at the beginning, there's just a lot of alternatives, social media movies films whatever whereas like before if you wanted to be educated and in the know you had to read books but james newlick shows that there are still young i don't know exactly how old he is but contemporary writers out there that have style and voice and you know it's a little bit inspiring like now that we've discussed all four books troy what are your closing thoughts I think it's been a fun topic it was a fun topic to prepare for and to think about because you and I both expressed in our introduction how much reading means to us and I think that one of our goals is that reading means that same thing to as many people as possible I think that in a world where there are a lot of other options of things to do reading still remains kind of uniquely enriching and engaging and I think that getting more people to read is putting the right book in the right person's hands at the right time and you know maybe we've done this on the podcast maybe that's a little too ambitious but hopefully 
people think critically about the things that they're reading and that the things that young people in particular are being asked to read because maybe Jesus's son isn't your cup of tea, but beloved is or moon down to earth is. So having an open mind about different reading materials and not being so wedded to tradition, I think will only expand the number of readers out there. And with that being said, Mr. James Newlick, we have some questions for you about your book. Uh, if you're listening to our podcast and you're able to come on, we'd love to discuss the book with you. This is an open invitation. So if you're interested, reach out to us via social media. Uh, we're on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. So whatever your cup of tea is for that, just reach out to us and we can make it happen. For listeners, you can reach out to us as well. If you have any suggestions, any things we can do better, any topics you'd like covered or any books you'd like us to discuss, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. With that being said, thank you and good night. Until next time, happy reading.